Dear Father, what a joyous time it is to be here tonight, Father. I'm so thankful to have the energy that you bring this room with your spirit by each man and woman who serves, by those who've come to fellowship and join together in the body, Father. Thank you for the joy of this room. It's so easy, Lord, to get down on ourselves and our week and our busyness and the challenges we each face. And boy, doesn't the enemy love to just drag those things in front of us and and discourage us. Uh, What wisdom it was, Father, that you would call your body to gather often because you knew we needed each other and we needed the encouragement it would bring and we knew uh, you knew that we need to uh, be edified in things of worship and prayer and study and all the rest. How hard it would be, Father, to walk this walk that you've given us in this world that we live in if it weren't for this, the things we gain each time we meet. And, Father, in the same way, we don't want to just get these things and enjoy them for our own sake. We know that you're building us up for a mission, for a purpose. Uh, building this church up is a part of a plan, and And even that, Father, isn't the end. It's only a means to an end. We ask, Father, that you keep our minds and our hearts on the kingdom and on the purposes you have in equipping us and that we wouldn't be self-satisfied just having this place or having this audience or having this meeting or any other program. That's not our purpose, Father. Not in and of itself. We know that. So we ask, Lord, that as we study tonight, it's it's a stepping stone. It's just a, a moment along a path that you're working us down toward some goal that serves your purpose. And that we would always see what we learn in that way, Father, something that you intend to put to use later somewhere when it matters most. So let us be good students, good hearers, so that one day we'll be good doers of what you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 8. It's finally time we finish this chapter. And as we do, we're going to be looking at one of the most fascinating and I would argue one of the most misunderstood topics in the New Testament, and that is demonic possession, demon possession. Now, there's probably some new folks in the room, there always is, and I want to make something really clear. It's not like we're on this topic all the time. You know, know, there's churches like that, and there's probably some visitors that are thinking, I'm not sure we came to the right place, honey. And trust me when I say this, we move where the Bible moves. I mean, that's why our name is verse by verse. So we just happen to be, lucky you, we happen to be at the end of chapter 8, and the end of chapter 8 is a moment in Jesus' ministry where he will interact with demons. So one of the good things about teaching the Bible verse by verse, uh, if not the best thing, is that we are constrained by the text. I don't let myself dictate what we study. I let the Bible dictate what we study. And if it's there, we're going to cover it. And in that way, we will get the whole counsel of God's Word if you sit here long enough with me. So tonight, that's where we are. But before we get there, let's do a recap of where we've been up to this point so that we can put this topic in its proper context. Jesus, as you know, is in the Galilee at this point. He's teaching. He's moving around. He's performing various miracles. All of this is to validate his testimony as Messiah. And in chapters 8 and 9, where we are now, Matthew has uh, constructed a series of 10 miracles that Jesus performed while he was in the Galilee. These 10 illustrate his power and his authority. And Matthew has organized these particular 10 miracles in a special way. There are three groups of these Miracles, and the groups each tackle different areas of Jesus' power and authority. And then on top of that, Matthew has separated the three groups with two scenes that illustrate Jesus' authority to men in particular, over his disciples in one case and over unbelievers in another. So where we are now at the end of chapter 8 is we're currently in the middle of the second group of miracles, uh, specifically on the second miracle in that group. Now this group emphasizes Jesus' Uh, unlimited power 
Just the raw power of God. Tonight, as, as we get to the end, we look at the second one that shows Jesus' power over the intersection of the natural and the supernatural realms of nature. And that's where we are tonight. Open with me now, chapter 8, verse 28. And we read, When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank from the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave that region. Well, that's our story for tonight. Intriguing, I know, and you want to get into all the details, but we need to set some some background here, as we normally do. You'll remember in our study last week that Jesus and his disciples were getting ready to move across in the Galilee by sea. They were on the northwest corner at the time. They were near Capernaum, and they were going to move from there across by boat to an area called Gerasa or Gadara. Uh, the names that the Gospels use for this uh, eastern side, where they are now, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, can be confusing because you will see different words. Sometimes, as I said, it's called the land of the Gerasenes. Sometimes it's the land of the Gadarenes, as you saw here. Let me clear up that confusion. The eastern side of the lake or sea, as it's called, of Galilee, is a region, a large region, extends almost to the Jordan River. And that region is called Gadarenes in Jesus' day. There was a town in that region called Gadara, from which the region gets its whole name. Kind of like we have New York City and we have the state of New York. They had Gadara, the city, and the Gadarenes, which is this uh, area around it. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, there was also a town in the area called Gerasa. And sometimes people who were from Gerasa would be called the Gerasenes in the Gadarene, near Gadara. All right, so... For the most part, just look at those names as, as interchangeable in the sense that they all refer to the same general area, which is east of the Sea of Galilee. All right. Another detail. This entire side of the Sea of Galilee is largely Gentile, even though, of course, the land is of Israel. Nonetheless, Gentiles had settled there. Now, it wasn't free of Jews entirely, but as you probably know, Jews kept their distance from Gentile settlements. So as the Gentiles moved into Gadara and spread out, they naturally pushed the Jews out as well over time. So by the time of this story, uh, the Gentile settlements extended all the way from uh, Bethesda. Bethesda is up about due north, really, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. All the way around on the clock dial, you'd be saying from 12 o'clock all the way around to Tiberias, which sits at, at about 9 o'clock. So almost two-thirds, three-quarters of the surrounding area was mostly Gentile. The Jews pretty much occupied from where Jesus had just been, from Tiberias up to uh, where he departed, Magdala, basically, right, for what it's worth. All right, so as Jesus and the disciples land in Gadara, as you hear, they have two men come out from the tombs there and confront them. And Matthew says, the bodies of these men were possessed or occupied by demonic spirits. And as a result, they're extremely violent men. They routinely attack anyone who goes by them, Matthew says. And so, obviously, the locals had learned to keep their distance. They didn't venture into this area lest they be attacked by these guys. Mark and Luke 
who also record this miracle, and by the way, include a lot more detail than what you're seeing here in Matthew, they choose to mention only one of these men in their accounts. And Matthew, although he abbreviates the details of the account, he makes sure that he tells you that there were actually two men involved. And I think that's because he wrote to Jews. You know, a Jew would have been far more persuaded about this account based on the testimony of two witnesses than he would have been on the testimony of one. That's probably why Matthew includes the fact that there's two here. But anyway, as these men come upon Jesus, they cry out. You hear what they say, right? They cry out with two very odd questions. First, and by the way, by the nature of these questions and by what follows, you can tell that the demonic spirits are the ones asking the question. Not the human beings that they occupy. They're not asking the questions. The demons are speaking. And they ask Jesus first, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? In literal Greek, it says, what to us and to you, Jesus, Son of God? Basically, they're saying, what are you, what are you messing with us today for? Why are you getting involved in us in the work that we're doing here, in our work here. And their question is one part inquiry and one part shock and surprise. You know, first they're caught off guard. They didn't expect to see Jesus this way. And so they're kind of questioning, why have you come? Have you come for us? Are we the reason you're here? And they're secondly surprised by his timing. They ask in the second question, have you come here to torment us before the time? And so they assume that Jesus' whole purpose in getting in the boat And coming across the land, in fact, his whole purpose for being incarnate, it would seem, was so that he could come to them and initiate judgment. Talk about being full of yourselves. I mean, he's got a lot to do. You know, they're not the only two demons. Nonetheless, they seem to think that the proper time for judgment is yet to come. That that Jesus is ahead of the plan. that That he's acting too early. That's what they're thinking, right? But before Jesus says anything, they point out to him that there's a herd of swine nearby. And that's when they ask a third question. And they ask, if you are intending to cast us out of these men, could you send us into these pigs? Remember, this is a Gentile region of the lake. So because it's Gentile, you have herds of pigs being kept. Obviously, this would not have been the case if you were on the Jewish side of the lake. So as the encounter ends, you see Jesus commanding these spirits to leave the men, go, and ostensibly he must have agreed to the terms because as they leave these men they go flying out into the pigs and at which point you see the demons driving those pigs down the hillside into the water and they all drown in moss in other words they commit suicide it it doesn't get any better i mean that's it all right now let's try to make sense of all this and to do that we're going to have to take note of every detail in the story And the first point, I hope, is obvious. Demons are real. Demons are real. Demons are the Bible's name for angels that followed after Satan when he fell into sin. You can read about Satan's fall in Ezekiel 28. Revelation says that as Satan, as he's called sometimes the dragon, as Satan rebelled against God, he was able to persuade a third of the angelic realm to follow him instead of staying loyal to God the Creator. I'll read you a short passage out of Revelation twelve seven. John writes, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels, notice, and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, so 
Those who followed Satan were originally angels. They were originally just part of the angelic realm, like Michael. But because they sinned in rebellion, they become evil adversaries of God, and they are forevermore known in the Bible now as demons. They're they're still angels, but their corrupt nature has changed them in a fundamental way. So if you believe the Bible when it says that God created angels, then you must also believe that there are evil angels called demons, because the Bible says that too. And if you believe the Bible when it says that angels were created by God to be ministering spirits to render service to the elect, then you also must believe that the demons serve Satan by attacking the Lord's saints to disrupt God's purpose in our lives. They are literally on two sides opposing each other in the war that has continued on as Revelation described it. So, first point is, there are such things as demons, just like they were then, they exist now. And in fact, this scene in particular also makes plain that demons have the power to take up residence in the body of a human being. That is a fact. That is not Hollywood. It is not myth. It is a fact. That principle is present throughout the Gospels. And I would add, Jesus' interaction with these demons and their possessing of human bodies is a hallmark of his earthly ministry. It's a major recurring theme in the Gospels, Jesus interacting with demon-possessed people. And the principle, the very principle of demons interacting with physical bodies, that extends all the way back to Genesis. Do you remember the first time you see an example in the Bible in a demonic spirit interacting with physical nature? How about Genesis chapter 3, when the devil takes the body of a serpent and uses it to talk to woman? There's your first example. And then later in chapter 6, you find demons mating with women, we're told, producing a a grotesque offspring called Nephilim shortly before the flood of Genesis. And then furthermore, we have even more dramatic examples of spirit union with human bodies in the New Testament. The best of those, by the way, is the Spirit of God inhabiting the body of every believer. And the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary. Right, So, if you can accept that the Spirit of God lives inside you, then you must also accept the reality that demons can inhabit human bodies also. But Scripture is also clear on something here. These possessions I'm describing, the one of the Spirit of God and the one of demons, are mutually exclusive. As the Spirit of God comes to live in a believer... He sets up a permanent residence, the Bible says. He will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews says. And because the Spirit of God is living in a believer permanently, there is a no-vacancy sign on your body at all times. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit makes demon possession impossible, according to Scripture. Our God is a jealous God, and the Bible says He will not share us with demons. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are temple of the, the temple of the living God. And look what God says about His temple. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. You know, if He commands you, who He, who he lives in, not to touch what is unclean, so to speak, do you think He's going to let the unclean touch you? Not in the sense of indwelling. 
Furthermore, John reminds us that the Lord who is in us is stronger than the Spirit who is in the world, as you know. So the point is simple. The Lord has placed a seal on you by your faith. And that seal, by His faithfulness, has a power to ensure you never belong to the enemy. Ever. So simply put, a Christian cannot be indwelt by a demon. Later in chapter 12, when we get there in this book, we're going to see Jesus teaching a story that you may remember of a house swept clean and demons can be sent out and then more will come back. When we get to that story, we'll actually come back to this point and you'll see yet more evidence of what I just taught. Now, having said that, having said the fact that you cannot be indwelled if you are a believer, don't underestimate the power of demons to affect you in other ways. They may not indwell us, surely, but they can tempt us, they can torment us, they can disrupt our plans. And in those moments, we're not called by Scripture to stand up to them in some kind of foolish thought that we have power against them because we can say magic words as sometimes people have been taught. If you try that, they will run all over you. The demons and Satan himself love nothing better than to encounter a Christian who thinks they have power through some kind of incantation to push them away. They love that. And if you don't believe me, there's a story in Acts 19 about the sons of Sceva that'll teach you a little bit about what demons do to people who try to cast out words over them. Okay? They have real power. Real power. The Bible says we are to do something different. The Bible says we are to resist the devil's efforts to tempt us, and if we resist him, he will flee. But how do you resist? Well, it's actually not as hard as it sounds. James says this in James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the real answer answer to defeating the enemy in the life of a believer is to submit to the Lord. I think what James is saying is a a devil or demon can see a believer's heart submitted to the Lord in some context, and when he sees that, he realizes, I have no chance in this moment, and he flees looking for another one. So what have we learned so far? Demons are real. They can possess a human body, that is, of unbelievers. And next, the next thing we learned in this story, by what we read of these men, they have dramatic effect on the person that they occupy. They can substitute their own thoughts for the person's thoughts. They can substitute their own words for the person's words. And they can drive that person to do certain things. In this case, we hear that the demons spoke through the mouths of these men. We heard that already. Now, keep in mind, that means these men did not speak. They didn't sit there and consciously decide to say what was actually said. The demons did all the talking through their body. What was going on in the mind of the individual in the moment? We don't know. They may not have had any conscious awareness of what was happening. We're not sure. In Mark and Luke's account of this same moment, you learn more about what these demons were doing to these guys. In those Gospels, you find out that these demons drove these men to act in some pretty bizarre ways, including going naked in public, attacking anyone who walked by, like we heard, wandering out into the desert, and furthermore, we're told that the demons can magnify the physical abilities of the people that they occupy or possess, causing them to be able to do things they never would have been able to do otherwise. Anyone who's worked in Um, social services or medicine has had to deal with people who come in off the street, many of them, I believe, are demon-possessed, have immense strength. They're very unpredictable, very dangerous people, and it's because of this phenomenon. In the case of this story, these men gained supernatural, physical strength. We don't hear much about it in Matthew, but in Mark and Luke, we're told that they were able to break iron chains that had been used in a futile effort by the townspeople to keep these men from attacking each other, or attacking people. And the men just broke the chains. 
I mean, this isn't Hollywood, friends. This is real. This happened. It's likely, by the way, that the stories we have of ancient mythology, of people who are superhuman, of characters that have these incredible powers, that may have been based on the history of demon possession and how that turned into mythology, for all we know. So, as a demon possesses a body, you can expect that person at times to act in bizarre ways, evil ways, uncontrollable ways, and powerful ways. It's a tactic. What the, de- what the enemy is trying to do when he makes this effort is to do all these things to steal, kill, and destroy. And obviously, if you make someone act in a crazy, violent way, seemingly unexplainable Uh, it's going to further that purpose among anyone that comes into contact with that individual. I mean, there are so many great tragedies, so many of the great tragedies of our day today, I believe, are the product of people experiencing demon possession. And I want you to take note. You don't have to do this now. We're, We're not in the right moment now. But as you see life passing by over the next year or two, and you see the kinds of stories that we've all, unfortunately, become so accustomed to hearing, I want you to take note of some details. I want you to notice, for example, how often in a mass shooting or when you see extreme violence against children or sexual crimes and the like, I want you to notice a pattern. You're not looking, when you see the pattern, remember, you're not looking at copycat crime as it's often described. You're looking at the same demons moving from person to person, driving them to commit similar acts because it's creating mayhem and fear and discontent and worry and chaos. And that's a part of the plan for them. In fact, if you watch news stories that surround these events, you'll also notice something interesting uh, in this pattern I'm talking about. Um, You'll notice how the unbelieving world is utterly incapable of explaining it. And they say that. It's an unexplainable thing. How do people do these things? What could explain these things? And no one ever has an answer, do they? They don't have answers, friends, because they limit their investigation to the natural. They won't consider supernatural potential causes. And so they'll call such things mental illness rather than spiritual illness because the unbelieving world simply denies that there is anything beyond the physical to consider. And I'm not saying every time someone does something crazy, it's a demon. That's not my point either. My point is it's one of the causes for what you see happening in culture. It always has been, as it was in Jesus' day. And the demons didn't go away after A.D. 33. They're still here. So just as the Spirit of the Lord can enter a body of a believer, equip us for godly work in that way, so can demons inhabit unbelievers' bodies and prompt ungodliness out of them. But I believe the consequences of demon possession extend beyond simply creating mayhem. And this is a bit of supposition on my part. I always preface that when I'm teaching so that you don't think I'm pulling this somewhere out of the Bible. I do have a a place I would take you in the Bible back in Genesis, but rather than spend time on that, I'm just going to give you my supposition. Anyone who's interested in the detail can ask me later. It's my supposition that besides granting extreme strength to those they occupy, demons also can grant people special knowledge, special abilities, Things that normal people don't do otherwise. Bolstering intellect, adding charm and charisma, talent in various forms, in such a way that these people can encourage and collect a great following because of how unique they are. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that many of the achievements of geniuses of our history, especially many of our current time, are men and women who are doing what they do prompted by demonic influence. Extraordinary athletes, prescient inventors, transcendent artists, musical savants, 
it's possible in my mind that they, in some cases, may owe their success to powerful spiritual agents that occupy their bodies. After all, that's exactly how the enemy will equip the Antichrist, we're told, to accomplish the things he does in his day to come. Remember, the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy, and he'll use a variety of methods to do it, but his ultimate purpose is to draw our attention and our worship away from Jesus and away from his Father and onto himself. And he can accomplish that, friends, either by instilling terror and fear and chaos or and or by enticing humanity away with entertainment and spectacle and amazing things. Things you can't turn away from. And that's just as effective if, it is intention, if its intention is to take us away from following the Lord. So a man or woman who displays rare insight or performs mysterious feats or drives great accomplishment, they may be somebody you might want to take a second look at as well. They, they may have a following that has been demonically designed to lead people astray. So the, world, the Word of God tells us that the spiritual realm is real, that it is powerful, And it works in an important way. In some ways, their world is more real than the physical one that we know so well. It's the one that actually controls the physical realm. Both God, of course, overall, and the enemy under his control. Now, having said all of that, and before we go any further in this story, I want to caveat everything I've said with a great quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So in other words, we have to recognize demons are real and they have real power, but let's refrain from the temptation to see devils lurking behind every corner. I'm not suggesting that either. So let's move on from that, though. The next thing I want to notice in the story here is that these demons recognize the power and the authority of the true deity. This gets, to me, one of the most fascinating moments in the whole story. They immediately know who Jesus was, and they address him as the Son of God. What's so interesting about that is when you remember, demons rebelled against God, and they were cast down from heaven before Jesus was ever incarnate. So I presume they've never seen the man Jesus, not in his physical form. And yet, he appears, and they immediately know who he is. What that tells us, is that demons, like all spirits, they can perceive a spiritual dimension that human beings cannot see. You know, to anyone else who had been standing there on that day, here just comes another ragtag group of men off a boat from the Galilee. They wouldn't have known Jesus from the next guy. But the, the demons, they immediately know who this is, in a spiritual sense. So it's not like a bunch of people just walk by in their mind. They see Jesus for who he truly is, despite his outward appearance. And they readily acknowledge him and his authority, despite the fact that they've already rejected that authority. They rejected Jesus to his face when he was in the throne room of God. As they fell, Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, he saw Satan fall like lightning. So they rejected him when he was in heaven. Now they see him and they call him the Son of God. That pattern is so different than the way human beings are with God. It's really interesting. A person today on this earth who rejects the authority of God, an unbeliever, we we might say, that person generally lives in defiance of God, and they're committed to never acknowledging Him. That's the whole reason they reject Him, right? But they can only do that for a little while. Because the Bible says 
that it's because they've never encountered God face to face in a spiritual context that they can live in this kind of self-denial that lets them say, I'll never submit to God. One day, the Bible says, all unbelievers will stand before Jesus in spiritual form, and in that moment, they will act just like the demons did. That is, for the first time, they will have obtained the spiritual insight to know who Jesus truly is, and in that insight, they will respond with recognition, but of course, by that time, acknowledging His power and His authority will have bought them nothing, because their judgment will have arrived. Paul says this in Philippians 2.9, For this reason God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's what these demons assumed were happening. Back to the story. That's what they thought was happening in this moment. They thought the Philippians 2 passage I just read was underway. They assumed Jesus came to act on his promise to judge all unrighteousness. And they cannot help but confess that Jesus is their judge. And they confess that despite the fact that their hearts do not want him to rule over them. But then they had that interesting insight. They said, but it's kind of early. It's before the time, they said. Before the time. And that comment leads us to the next insight about demons. Demons possess a general understanding of God's plan, but they lack the spiritual insight to appreciate the details. They're just like unbelievers, by the way, because they are, effectively. And an unbeliever, the Bible says, cannot understand Scripture. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul says. And, of course, they can't understand it because the only way you can understand the Bible is if you have the Spirit of God to teach you what it means. And certainly the demons don't have Him any more than unbelievers don't have Him. And so, demons know what is possible to know without the Spirit of God. That is, they know that there is an end coming. Look, you can talk to any unbeliever you want, and they've at least heard that someone thinks there's an end coming. Whether they believe it or not, they know about it. And there's some other general things like that that you can talk to anyone about. And they'll at least have some understanding of what you're saying. But what people don't know who don't know the Bible, who don't know the Lord, they don't know the exact timing of these things. They don't know the meaning of these things. They can't know things in advance in the way that the Bible presents it. All they know is that they face a judgment for their rebellion and that there are some things that must happen first before that judgment will take place. And they're determined to try to stop it in the meantime. That's what demons know. You can see this, by the way, clearly during Jesus' crucifixion. You remember the story, of right? You have the devil who knows that the Son of God has come to defeat him. He's known that that's coming since Genesis 3. He just didn't know the exact details of the plan. Remember back in Genesis 3 when he's told that there would be a seed who would come and that he would strike Satan on the head and Satan would have a chance to strike him on the heel. You know, the proto-evangelium it's called from Genesis chapter 3. Well, Satan knew, okay, you're going to send somebody who's going to try to beat me. I'm ready for him. And so, from the very first offspring from woman, Cain, he was determined to try to thwart the plan and corrupt the seed. He turned Cain into a corrupt murderer, and he thought, ha, there goes the plan of your Messiah. Turns out that wasn't the Messiah. And Eve thought Cain was the Messiah also, which is why she was surprised when she found out he wasn't the guy, and she had to name the next son as she did Abel, which means vanity. She was telling on herself. She was saying, I was vain to think that I was going to be the one to birth the Messiah. Turns out it's got a longer plan than that. 
And the enemy has kept going after that. He tried to pollute the seed of woman with demons in chapter 6 of Genesis. Here again, trying to stop the plan of the coming Messiah, to stop the plan of the coming seed. And then as the plan began to mature, and Jesus actually entered the world, what did Satan do? He entered Herod, in my opinion. He was in Herod, directing Herod to kill all the babies. God stopped that. Later, he drove Pharisees to conspire against Jesus. And then finally, who does he enter to bring the plan to fruition? Judas. But what's interesting is in doing all these things, he merely played into God's hand. He actually furthered the very plan that put Jesus on the cross, which would be the means by which God would defeat the enemy in the end. So that's why, friends, so much of Scripture is written in ways that obscure its meaning, whether that's in prophetic terms or in parables and the like. It's because, as Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 13, there are things appointed for us to know, and then there are things that are not appointed for the world to know. And in part, obscuring Scripture that way is a way that God prevents the devil and the unbelieving world in general from interfering with that plan. They only know enough to know that something's happening, and they're trying to disrupt it, but they don't know the details of that plan. And so they cannot get ahead of it. God is unfolding it actually through them. So here's what we've learned. Keep recapping here. Demons are real. They can possess human bodies. They can give us great ability or give unbelievers great abilities. And in that way, they use people as pawns in a great war that they're waging against God's plan. And in their possessing of people, they can sow seeds of fear and confusion and, and hopelessness. Or they can create great spectacle and present awesome power that draws people away into following something other than the living God. They can give someone great insight to know something about what's coming based on what they plan to do, and yet they can't know what God is planning to do. They don't know the Bible. They don't know His Word. And so they always remain on attack, ready to do something to disrupt God's plan anytime they can kind of see what might be going on around them. But now we still have the end of the story to consider. That is, why do they ask to go into swine? Why does Jesus allow them to go into swine? And why do they kill the pigs? There's some people in here that are mostly concerned about that last question. All right, from what we've already learned, you can answer every one of those questions, and I'll help you do it. First, we know the demons thought Jesus had come for them, right? And yet they also seem to know, probably based on some general understanding of what is in the Bible, they also had a sense that the ultimate day of their judgment wasn't supposed to happen yet. They probably understood that there were some numerous events that were foretold in Scripture that had to take place before the end judgment, chief among them the kingdom. And without the kingdom having been present, there won't be a final judgment. And so they assumed that Jesus had come for another reason. What they assumed was he had come to banish them to the temporary place of judgment for demons. The Bible says that God holds disobedient evil spirits in a place of confinement in the center of this physical earth awaiting that future ultimate judgment. And it's called the abyss, Scripture says. When unbelievers die, there's a similar plan for them. When an unbeliever dies, the Bible says their spirit enters a holding place also in the center of the earth called Hades, or we say hell. But that's not the final state of judgment for an unbeliever. The Bible says that in a future day, all of those who are waiting there will be resurrected into new bodies, stand before Jesus for a final moment of judgment, and then based on that judgment, they all get thrown into a place called the lake of fire. Well, demons have a similar plan. Now, they don't die in the sense of how a human being can. But on occasion, the Bible says, God will confine demons to this prison in the center of the earth called the abyss when they do things that are particularly egregious. The best example you'll have of that is out of Peter. Peter says that 
Second uh, Peter says that the demons that were responsible for mating with the women right before the Genesis flood, they were confined in the abyss as punishment for going out of their bounds in that way. So in Luke's account, we read this about this moment. In Luke's account of this scene, he writes in 831, the demons were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. You see, that was their concern. They knew their final judgment wasn't due yet, but they could only assume, if you've come all this way for us, that's the only reason you would have come. We've been misbehaving here too badly, and you've decided we need to join our friends in the abyss, and they don't want that. And so, in an attempt to save themselves from that outcome, they start this negotiation process. Now, what's really interesting is Jesus never said he was going to do any of this. Their minds just run away with it. They just start to assume and work to save themselves before they find out their real fate. And so they think they can work a better deal. They say, tell you what, instead of the abyss, send us into the pigs. Now, the demons knew that swine were unclean to Jews, and so maybe they thought, oh, Jesus will think that's a pretty bad thing. He'll think that's a bad punishment. He'll see that as a good alternative. They thought maybe they're putting one over on Jesus. You know, like the kids who try to negotiate their way out of a bad punishment with mom and dad. And usually that's when the mom and dad say to the kid, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. Right? Who do you think you're fooling? Now, the story in this regard teaches us another important detail concerning demon possession. What happened to the pigs after they entered the pigs? Well, they immediately take off down the hill in a very unnatural way, and they head off into the water where they commit suicide, as I mentioned, right? Where they die. Well, we know that that was prompted by the, the entry of the demons. The demons possessing the pigs drove that behavior, because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. It's not a normal behavior for pigs. That's teaching us that once a demon decides to set up residence in a body, whether that's a person or an animal, they have to find a way to set themselves free from that body because they are trapped in that body. That is, they cannot leave the body as long as the body is alive. Only the Lord has the power and the authority to remove a demon from a body once it sets up residence. Now, he can do it himself, as he did with Jesus present in the moment, or he can do it through other human beings that he equips for that work. We call them exorcists. I'm not saying that's common. I'm just saying it doesn't require that Jesus be physically present. But in some fashion, God has to do the work or the demon cannot get out. The only other option, apart from God casting him out, is if the body, the host, let's call it, dies. And you see biblical evidence of that, here and elsewhere. As soon as the demons enter the swine, they compel the swine to kill themselves, because by that method, the demons are freeing themselves to roam again. You see, that's the trick here. That's the thought they had. You know, if they get confined to the abyss, there ain't no getting out of the abyss. But if they can make Jesus let them go into swine, they can get their own escape. And they knew that. Now, you may also remember another example from the Bible. Remember, we just mentioned it a minute ago. As, as Satan entered Judas, and he compelled Judas to, di- to betray Jesus, the very next thing he did with Judas, on the very same day, I might add, was he compelled Judas to take his own life. Because he had no intention, Satan had no intention, of setting himself up in the residence of Judas for the next several decades. He had better things to do. So he spent just enough time in that man to do what he needed, and then freed himself from that occupation. And friends, you'll also see this pattern working today. Now, we don't understand spiritual truth by looking at the world. We don't interpret the Bible through a lens of the world. That's exactly the opposite of what we should do. We need to interpret what we see in the world through a lens of Scripture. But that doesn't mean you can't, having knowing something about Scripture, that doesn't mean you can't look at the world and see examples. And I think this is one of those cases where you can. 
You should notice how often those who perpetrate the most extreme and bizarre crimes in our day will often take their own life at the end. Presumably, a demon has compelled that person to commit suicide in that way, so that after they have done whatever they've been made to do, when the killing spree is over, the demon persuades the person to commit suicide so that they may be freed and move out to do it again. There's a reason why these events keep happening every few months. And the demon doesn't want to wait for that person to die in prison over some number of decades. They want to get on with their work and leave that body as soon as they can. And I would also add that I have studied on this myself, and I have found this to be true, that when these people that are under these conditions uh, fail to take their life for whatever reason, the demon will continue to torment them in prison, pressing them to commit suicide at any cost to get out of that jail cell, the body being the the jail cell for for that demon. And that, again, is the trick they thought they were playing on Jesus. They knew they could escape from the pigs, but not the abyss. That leads us to the next question. Why did Jesus let him do it? Well, simply put, he couldn't care less about these demons. There's, there's no plan at this point in Jesus' ministry to punish these two demons. He didn't cross the lake to punish the demons. That was their mistake in assuming that Jesus came for them. He came to set these men free. And among other things he would do in this region. He came to cast them out. He really could not care less where they went at this point. There's no record at any point in the Gospels of Jesus committing any demon to the abyss. That's not necessarily to Jesus' advantage. In fact, Luke says in his Gospel, Jesus came to save, not to judge. But his ministry was focused exclusively on helping people escape this misery, not focusing his attention on solving the cause of it. Not in the moment, not then, not now. He solves it for us spiritually in our faith. He'll solve it for the world in physical terms at his final judgment. And it's important to remember here, Jesus didn't initiate this conversation. He never brought up judgment. He never brought up the abyss. He never said anything to these uh, demons. In fact, the only word he gave to these demons was the word go which was the moment in which he cast them out. He let them pick their own destination. They could just as easily have left and never gone into the swine, as far as we can tell. There was never a moment when Jesus made any deal at all. He just wanted to free the men. And the pigs, for those who worry about them, they're just collateral damage. They were going to end up as bacon sooner or later anyway. You know what's ironic about this story and the way it played out? Because of the demon's ignorance... They played right into Jesus' hands again. They intended to trick Jesus, right? Their thought was, we're going to prolong this rebellion. But in reality, all they managed to do through this interaction was testify to his authority and his identity, and they gave opportunity for Jesus to display his power through them. So what do you do with this knowledge that I just gave you, this this knowledge of demons? That's That's the real question here, because I assure you, there aren't many churches on an average weekend spending this kind of time on demon possession and doing it from a biblical point of view. The few that might address it are probably dragging people up here, slapping them on the forehead and saying, be freed, right? Unfortunately. So what are we to do with this knowledge? That's a fair question. Well, in short, we live in fear of God, but not in fear of this enemy. That is, knowing something about the methods of our enemy, I think, helps demystify it a little bit. Just enough that we're no longer feeling as though there's just chaotic activity, that God's out of control. We start to see a method to their madness. And in that way, I think we can put it in perspective. We are supposed to live with a respect for the reality and the power of the enemy. But we obey Scripture, submitting to God, so that we resist him and he flees from us. 
And if and when you encounter a demon-possessed person, and I will tell you I've encountered several face-to-face under different circumstances, and the stories are always crazy to tell because they're so unusual. Always be wary, friends. Be wary. They aren't behind every corner, but they are around. Steer clear of them. Do not presume you have any power over them. Only the Lord can free a demon-possessed person, and unless the Lord has specifically granted you the spiritual power to do that, they are not your equal, you are not their equal. Go read Acts 19 again, and you'll see what I'm saying. You need to give them a wide berth. All right? Their power is real, and we have no reason to think that our purpose here on earth as the church is to go toe-to-toe to them in some kind of test of physical power. That's not our goal. And then the last thing I'll say. Don't allow the enemy's tactics in the way we've learned them tonight that is, of bringing death and mayhem and all the rest, don't let that prompt despair in your heart. You know, when the world is, is crashing in on itself and struggling to try to understand why they've seen what they've seen in shooting after shooting or parents killing their own children or things that just don't have explanation in an earthly sense or seemingly don't, when people are struggling in those moments, we have answers they don't have. And our answers need to come not out of some kind of of fear or sensationalism or myth. They need to just be grounded in Scripture in a way that directs people first to the answers they most immediately are seeking. Why? How? But then thereafter and quickly to the solution. You know, don't dwell on the the demons part of it. Move to the solution of it. That's where you get an opportunity. Notice in verses 33 and 34, at the end of the story, as these men, the, 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 the herdsmen who kept the pigs, as they go back and report the outcome of all these things, what did it result in? Now, we might have assumed it would result in this revival among the townspeople, right? And seeing the power of God. But it doesn't do that. You notice that? They come back in fear and they ask Jesus to leave. Friends, that's what the demons want. That's the demon's effect. It's kind of an irony at the end of this story. Even though the demons weren't able to outsmart Jesus as they thought they were, nevertheless, they did accomplish their mission here, at least to a degree. By inhabiting these men, and then later the swine, as the story goes, they generated fear. And fear is what drove people away from Jesus. Remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so you don't fear the enemy, not in the way these people did, certainly. And though we know the world belongs to him for a while, the Bible says the world is passing and you've overcome the world. So you have no long-term fear concerning what he can do or where that leads you. And even if he is in the process of tormenting you for a time, it's going to be temporary. It has to be, because he's temporary. But as you minister to the world through what you know from what we've studied tonight, Recognize their fear is a barrier to Jesus. What you can do in alleviating that barrier is you can walk them through the sense of what Scripture says on this matter just long enough to set it all right in their minds and then move them from that topic to the one that really matters, which is how do you overcome that? And how do you protect yourself from it? How do you get that no vacancy sign on your chest? So look at using what you just learned for the sake of advancing the gospel in the hearts of those who are rocked by a world that is in the enemy's hands. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, we we pray for two things. I pray for two things tonight, Father, for those who have heard a message on the enemy and his tactics. First, Father, I pray that we would have a, a healthy interest in this topic. And by healthy, Father, I pray that it would be enough knowledge that we would be useful workmen in the field that you have placed us in for the sake of the gospel.
that we be informed and that that information in our heads, Father, would turn into our, uh, a love for others in our hearts and a, and a desire to minister to others in the midst of difficult circumstances and a wisdom to know how to deal with the enemy as we may see him at work around us, a wisdom to know his power and his authority as he continues it for a while, but also, Father, to know your greater power and authority in us. And then secondly, Father, I pray that what we've seen and heard of tonight would equip us in a way that we may not have had in the past so that when friends or co-workers or schoolmates or neighbors are lamenting what they see happening around them in the news and in the world in general, that we might have a soft, quiet moment with them to just say, well, we, we know something about that and here's what they should know. And Father, prepare a heart in our life somewhere in our walk that when we have that conversation, they'd respond, that they'd be open and they'd be able to listen and hear the words of truth out of Scripture. And give us the right words to use so that that conversation might mature to a faith in you. What a great and wonderful irony it would be, Father, if what the enemy has done in sowing fear would be an opportunity for us to lead them to the truth, to the truth of you and your gospel. We ask these things, Father, knowing you can do all things. And through your Son, Jesus. Amen.